Welcome to the Organizing Ideas Podcast. I'm Allison. And I'm Karen, and we are two new librarians and archivists and your hosts for this podcast. Together, we're taking a closer look at the relationships between organizing information and community organizing, how libraries and archives are never neutral, and what we mean when we say that knowledge is power. We are recording today on the unceded and ancestral territories of the Musqueam, Squamish, and Tsleil-Waututh peoples. Today, our guest is Zakia Collier. Zakia is the digital archivist for the Schomburg Center for Research in Black Culture in New York City. In spring of 2019, she received her Master of Science in Library and Information Science from Long Island University and a Master of Arts in Media, Culture, and Communication at New York University. Zakia's work is driven by a passion to understand how cultural identity influences our experiences and perceptions of the world around us, as well as affirming affirming the humanity of populations that have been repeatedly dehumanized throughout history. Is there anything else you want to add in introduction or that you want listeners to know about you? First, I want to say thank you both for having me here on the podcast today. Um, And I just want to say, and thank you for that introduction as well. I think in addition to being interested in cultural identity, I'm also interested in understanding how cultural identity shapes the work that we do and how we encounter experience and practice archives and archiving. And that's something that I also explore in my work, in my research, and as well in workshops that I do that mostly center around queer and Black and Indigenous people of color. So congratulations on finishing both of those master's programs. Can you tell us a little bit how about how you got into librarianship and like this field of interest? Like how did you decide to pursue archival studies? Yeah, so I think the reason that I got into the field sort of perfectly explains the work that I do um, right now and that I'm committed to doing today. So really I came to archival studies through black studies and through black feminist literature. Um, So I started in the media culture communication program in fall of 2016 and Really, I got into that program after successfully combining Black studies, specifically Black history, media studies, and oral history in my undergraduate thesis um, at the University of South Carolina. So I decided to pursue the media culture and communication degree. And after a semester in the program, I became interested in the dual opportunity with library science at um, Long Island University. And in that same semester, well, for one, I sort of became interested in that program because I always had interest in libraries. Um, So I worked in the media center in elementary school, and I have like a cute little picture of me as media center volunteer. And in undergrad, I have applied to a, a few public library jobs. So I just always had this like interest that lived with me my entire life. And so I was like, hmm, maybe this is a thing I should do. And I'm also a a bit of an overachiever. Um, So I was like, ooh, I can get two master's degrees also for the price of one. So, um, (laughs) but I decided to hold off on it for a little bit. But in that same uh, semester, so spring 2017, um, I took a Black feminist theory class in my department. 
And it was in that class that I encountered the literature of Sadia Hartman, Christina Sharp, Tina Camp, um, Jennifer Nash, uh, Hortense Spillers. And through reading their literature and their work with the archive, I really just fell in love with the way that they sort of really brought their full selves to the work in order to sort of investigate and describe as fully as they could the lives of people who had been overlooked and who people had said weren't there, or sort of to really find and describe people who were uh, sort of living in the documents of someone else, so living in documents of slavery that actually documents their oppression and their ownership in slavery, but really just working tirelessly to bring them to the forefront and describe them. Um, And I just really fell in love with that and wanted to sort of work on the other side of that and find ways to bring these people more fully to the surface from the other side of the reference desk. And so after encountering this literature, I really just decided like, all right, I'm going to go ahead and do this overachiever thing and just get this other degree. And so I applied um, in that second semester. Cool. So you're finished now and you're working for the Schomburg Center for Research in Black Culture. Can you tell us a bit about what you do there? How long have you been working there? And yeah, what's that look like? Yeah. Um, so the Schomburg Center um, is a like research institute that focuses exclusively on documenting African-Americans, African diaspora, and African culture. And it began in 1926 with the uh, sale of the Arturo Alfonso Schomburg collection to the New York Public Library. Um, which at that time it became known as the Negro Division of, I believe, Manuscripts and Prints. That could be wrong, but something like that, the Negro Division at the 135th Street Library in New York. And so sort of since then, the Schomburg has been solely dedicated to just fully documenting the African diaspora in all the ways through artifacts, manuscripts, arts, artifacts, photographs, anything you can think of, the Schomburg is focusing on um, acquiring in order to document Black life more fully. And so the work that I do there as of August 2019, I'm a digital archivist and um, my work focuses on web archives. So to add to the arts and artifacts and manuscripts, the Schomburg now also collects web archives. Mm -hmm. Can you, um, like, what are web archives? Yeah. I think that there's often a misunderstanding about archiving on the internet. I click archive in my Gmail, which is probably not the same thing that you do for work. (laughs) So can you tell us what web archiving is for people who might not be familiar with it? (laughs) Yeah. um, So, you know, shout out to Gmail and all the other services that have an archive button for like putting archives, at least on the radar of many people who may not have ever thought about the term before. Um, But you're absolutely right. It is a bit different. And so really web archiving is like an intentional act of preserving um, web published materials in the way that they look on the day that you decide to preserve them. So um, 
for example, you know, I don't know, uh, any like my blog site, if I decided to web archive it today, I really just want to preserve sort of everything that is there and what it looks like on what is today, February 9th, 2020. But if I web archive it, let's say 50 days from now, maybe I've added a post and so it will look different if I do it then. But it's an intentional act to sort of capture what it looks like in that moment so that we have that for posterity. So in the same way that we have physical materials that we may take in today to just sort of understand what that um, sort of tells us about the current moment. It's the same principle with web archives. Thanks. So you're archiving materials related to the hashtag syllabus movement. Um, So what is the hashtag syllabus movement? Like, how did it start? How is it spread? Like, what is it? Yeah. So the hashtag syllabus movement really got started in the wake of the murder of Michael Brown in August of 2014 in Ferguson, Missouri, when he was murdered by former police officer Darren Wilson. Um, Later that month, history professor at Georgetown University, Dr. Marcia Chatlin, tweeted hashtag Ferguson syllabus in order to get people to sort of co-create and co-curate a list of resources that help to contextualize what this moment was, like this moment of civil unrest this moment of pain, trauma, people sort of responding to what was going on. So she really wanted to gather um, with the help of other scholars and other people sort of invested in finding resources for educators to use in the classroom to talk about what was happening. And I've sort of read in some some articles um, that she sort of thought about movements in her childhood where she really wished that she had resources that helped to make that make sense and was able to talk about that in a classroom or in other safe spaces um, and to really just understand like what's going on. And since sort of her initiating this movement in 2014, we've seen a number of other syllabi sort of show up to contextualize other social movements. So we have the Trump syllabus, unfortunately, so. We have the Charleston, hashtag Charleston syllabus. We have syllabi on prison abolition, the Central Park Five, sort of anything. And I think over time, they sort of expanded from just the hashtag syllabi movement into people just sort of creating syllabi um, on their websites and blogs to give people resources on the things that they care about and that other people may also care about. And I think it just really documents this moment in Black studies specifically, but also more broadly, just in online spaces where people are wanting to self-educate and take educational resources outside of the university and open it up to people who may not have access in the same way that people who are attached to an institution of higher learning. I have a question relating it back to the the, the what is web archiving, Um, because in that you're talking about trying to show these records in the context that they're created and when a lot of this stuff is coming out on Twitter uh, that must be very hard to do because the context changes so I'm curious when you archive these materials is it in the context of 
that hashtags feed, a person's individual feed, how do you show the relationships, like in Ferguson to other conversations happening about that that might not have that hashtag. Can you talk a bit about that? How you think through all that? Yeah, that's actually a really great question. Um, So in a lot of these, like I said, there's sort of like this distinct thing happening where we have these hashtag syllabi that is still very much an active movement sometimes in response to something that's happening in the world, whether it's an album comes out. So there's like a Beyonce syllabus, there's a Lemonade syllabus for when her album drops. So there's things that respond to culture and to like social movement, but there's also like these syllabi that people are just like, this is my project. And so I'm going to create a syllabus of things relating to things that I'm interested in. So like there's a black disability syllabus there's a hmm I think of some other ones that are out there um but there's just sort of like these uh syllabi that people have just noticed that that's a thing that's going on and so with any project people are just like yeah we should include a syllabus or a bibliography that we're not necessarily citing anything, but it's just like these people are saying things that we're, we support. Um, and these people over here are saying things that we find important and contextualizing whatever statement that we're trying to make on this particular website. And so at the Schomburg Center, we've decided for the moment to not focus on archiving social media, just because there is sort of so much that comes with that. Um, there's a lot of additional labor and resources involved. Social media is ever-changing. Twitter populates endlessly. Um, so for the time being, we're focusing on the more permanent structures, still ephemeral, but more permanent syllabi, many of which were started on Twitter, but someone sort of had the foresight to create a Google Doc or Maybe it started as a Google Doc on Twitter. So someone's like, here's this Google Doc, everybody add to it. And many of those Google Docs are still live. So I focused on web archiving those or the ones that people have posted on their blogs and websites rather than uh, social media. Cool. Thank you. Yeah. yeah. Do you have a favorite syllabi? Syllabus? Um, a favorite syllabus. Wow. What a question. Hmm. I don't think I can say that I do, but I think I have maybe a favorite type of syllabus or like the favorite uh, sort of setting in which I found syllabi is like on these sort of increasingly professors are creating websites that um, go alongside their class, especially if they have multiple iterations of this class. And many of these are classes that are sort of revolutionary in the context of typical classes that you find in a university. So it may be a class on like Black death or it may be a class on Black Lives Matter and really talking about the movement or um, showing the legacy between like the civil rights movement or maybe slavery to Black Lives Matter. So they create these websites where not only is the syllabus and the class itself being offered in an institution that likely has racist roots because many of them do, um, especially if they're PWIs. So the class itself is sort of standing out amongst other classes at the university. And the syllabus, obviously, as a part of this class, does the same thing. 
But then you're able to see sort of students responding online where they are, you know, making blog posts or responses every week, or they create these projects, like these digital projects. And so you're able to see sort of the entire trajectory of the class from like the syllabus and the readings that are there and sort of like what you can imagine, like what the students uh, were experiencing, like reading these things that are so different from what they probably normally would read in their classes. And then like what they're able to create. And many of these syllabi, you're able to like just see this like flexibility in what type of projects they can pursue and like students write songs and they make like these montage video compilations and they write about them and they're collaborative and so it's just really beautiful to like see that entire thing and like recognize the syllabus and like what the syllabus tells us about this moment in time and what is important to read to contextualize today and then how students are responding to that and just sort of imagining what they're going to do on the other side of this class um and like taking us into the future so those are my favorite types of syllabi to see. Yeah, that's really cool to see the whole arc of it. I feel like that relates to the next question because you were talking a lot about contextualization and how it relates to other materials. So can you talk a little bit more about how the syllabi relate to other things at the Schomburg? And maybe as a follow-up, I'm, I'm curious how all of this, all of the materials at the Schomburg is kind of presented or like organized like how do people what does it look like when people access it like do you is it on when you do web archiving like can I find that online or do I have to go there so um, in terms of how the syllabi relate to the rest of the Schomburg's collections um, I think that this the web arc like our web archiving in general is a bit different from the rest of the collection just because it is very much like 21st century so the hashtag syllabus project, um, which I mentioned, started in 2014. So that was, you know, just six years ago. So it really documents and sort of extends the Schomburg's collections, which go back to, I believe, as early as the 15th or 16th century into the 21st century. And so we do have some physical collections from the 21st century, but this is sort of like a more presentist approach of like, this is happening right now. And so, you know, the most recent syllabus that I um, identified was from early January. So it's almost, it's like real time archiving to ensure that like the moment that I'm living in um, and that we're all living in will like have a future and that someone, you know, 25 years from now can be like, what was happening at this time? And we have it there. Ask another question. I don't remember what it was. Oh, how can people access it and sort of access other materials at the Schomburg? So the Schomburg Center is organized by format. Um, so we have the Manuscripts, Archives, and Rare Books Division, which is the division that I work in. We have the Art and Artifacts Division, um, prints, Photographs and Prints, and the Moving Image and Recording Sound Division. So web archiving is sort of it actually intersects with all of those. Um, so I have photographs, um, not so much artifacts, but there's definitely art on the internet. So it sort of intersects with all of the divisions of the Schomburg Center, but I am personally a part of the Manuscripts, Archives, and Rare Books Division. 
but the general approach of web archiving um, is to sort of mirror the collecting practices of the divisions. So there is a art and artist organizations collection that sort of mirrors what is collected in the art and artifacts division. Oh, I missed the division. We also have our research and reference division, which is where we have our books and serials. And so there is like the collection of directories, um, which is something that like people do access the reference and research division for sort of to just learn more about the Harlem community um, and for reference materials. So like trying to collect the things online that are sort of like reference materials. And in terms of accessing the web archive, we use the Internet Archives tool Archive-It. And so if you go to Archive-It and search Schomburg Center, you'll find all of our collections there. So it's always available online. You don't have to contact me or anyone else at the Schomburg. It's widely available, um, which is also a bit different from the rest of our collections, which are for in use of the library only, aside for the things for, that are digitized. And so that is another sort of way of thinking about sort of expanding the way that archives look in the 21st century and sort of embracing this like post-custodial and making archives be it like for the community to access wherever they are um, and thinking about the Schomburg's immediate community being everywhere because it documents the Black diaspora. So online and across the entire world is our community. And so the internet is like particularly useful in making sure that all of our communities are able to access our materials. That's a huge job. Are you the only digital archivist or like, do you have a team? It's me. It's you? There's a team of one, (laughs) but I am a part of, um, because the Schomburg Center is like a part of NYPL, there is like a broader digital team. I'm not a part of it, but I do sort of work alongside them from afar and do sort of at least have conversations and and I'm a part of like working groups to think about the digital approaches for the Schomburg, I mean, for NYPL more broadly. But in terms of like web archiving for the Schomburg, it's me. Wow, (laughs) that's impressive. Yeah, I think that um, actually leads itself well into our last question for this section, which is why is it so important for Black and people of color centered libraries and cultural institutions to do web archiving? Like, why is it so essential? You exist, your position exists. And, and maybe is there a need for more of that? Yeah, um, I definitely think there's a need for more of needs, um, just because you know, it's a lot for just one person to do it. Um, But speaking in terms of like Black and POC libraries in general and cultural institutions, I think it's particularly important because our communities are everywhere. Um, And many times we can't access these spaces. Like the Schomburg Center is in New York City. But like I said, we document people from across the world. Um, And so not all of those people can come to the Schomburg Center, um, but they are maybe creating things online. Um, And I think what we know about Black people and people of color is that increasingly we are, are, the things that we're doing are happening in online spaces. 
um, for a number of reasons, sort of like the limited physical spaces that we have and the ones that we have had historically are increasingly being taken away or are under-resourced. And so a lot of the content that we're creating and the ways that we are uh, living our lives and communicating with other people is happening online. And so it's very important to document that and preserve sort of this moment where we're living our lives online and like we're having we're doing this podcast online like this thing is happening everything is happening online and we have our phones and our devices in our hands all the time and I think in addition to that people of color also sort of driving culture online and so the ways that we see technology changing is often as a result of like some way that like a person of color has already started saying like Twitter needs to do this thing or people started doing threads and then Twitter added the thread option. And so I think it's also important to sort of document our inventions online um, and the ways that we are shaping culture and like creating these fads and like making some of these platforms more popular than like they are meant to be just by our youth and like driving people to them. So summer 2019 was incredibly busy for you. I know you presented some of your work uh, multiple times also at ARI, the Archival Education and Research Initiative. Your presentation was titled, uh, quote, This History Has Engendered Me, end quote, Centering Embodied Black Knowledges in Archival Practice. Um, and that quote is from Saidiya Hartman's piece, uh, Venus in Two Acts. Uh, can you, like, maybe let's start with talking about, like, how Hartman and others you've mentioned earlier as well, like, how is that, what has that meant to you and your work? Um, yeah, so like I mentioned before, sort of the way I even decided and sort of walked into what I feel is like my calling to be a memory worker is through um, the literature of scholars like Hartman. But I would say that reading Venus in Two Acts was probably um, my first, first time sort of reading something where a Black woman scholar was really interrogating and being very personal about um, and vulnerable about her experience with reading materials about slavery, where the story is sort of unrecoverable in the sense of there is no way of, like, there is no way that this person's story, like, exists somewhere else or that maybe they had an opportunity to, you know, write a narrative while they're on a slave ship. Um, and so there, there is like no recovery in that sense and really trying to think about other ways of recovery or sort of rethinking the concept of recovery altogether. Um, and so it was just a very vulnerable piece that just called, called me and it was just, it was literally like a wake up call of like, you have to do this work. Like you, you are a part of this group and you have sort of always been a part of this group and like go forth and become an archivist. And so I think what this work means for me sort of in the work that I do now is that I recognize that the work and my approach to the work is very personal. 
Um, and I think it's really important to not pretend that sort of my, like my encounter with the archive as a researcher, as an archivist and as a writer isn't, I can't pretend that it's not informed by like my blackness, my womanness, my queerness. And I know that because of course archives aren't neutral. And I think it's important to just understand that the history of being a black woman um, and being a black queer woman, my decisions in archiving are informed by that. It's informed by the history of slavery. It's informed by how his how slavery was documented and how we have information about slavery is through like inventory lists. Um, and we may not know the stories of so many people. And so I think it's really important to sort of really think through that and just be very honest about um, the way that I understand archives and documentation is informed by the fact that there's so much documentation that I'll never see and so many stories that I'll never know um, about my ancestors. In your work, you also talk about critical archival studies and the three main points that you bring up are erasure, inclusion, and accountability. Can you say more about um, this and what you were talking about with interfacing with Black Studies scholarship and archival studies? Yeah, um, I think, so um, my thesis, like you said, sort of looks to bring together Black studies and critical archival studies. And I think bringing those two things together, there are they don't like fit together perfectly necessarily. So there are gaps, but I think those gaps are like spaces of possibility where we can like think through ways that the methodology methodology for doing archival research and creating archives through the scholarship can inform the ways that uh, archivists sort of critically think through and practice um, archives. And so what I've sort of noticed in reading through critical archival scholarship is that there, I sort of see three main veins that critical archival scholarship takes. And I think there are a lot of like articulations of that there is erasure, which I think is true, that the archive has served to erase and invisibilize and silence Black life, the lives of women, the lives of people of color, Indigenous lives. And it has done that intentionally, just through the methods that archives have like typically taken. We talked a little bit about archival value. We value documents. And like people who create documents are people who have power to do so. Um, and so in only valuing documents, we therefore erase the lives of those who are not creating those same documents. But I think in recognizing erasure, we can also, I think we can say that the archive has served to erase certain lives uh, from the record, or at least not represent fully. But with, we can say that without saying that those people are absent. Um, and so I hear a lot of like, Black lives are absent from the archive, which that's not true. And if we look at Black Studies scholarship, we can see that we can look at a document that was not meant to document Black life. It may have documented 
a black person, which was seen as property, but it wasn't meant to document like the fullness of that person's lives and their experiences. But that doesn't mean that the person is absent and that their life is absent. Um, and that doesn't mean that we can't look at that document and find out more or look at sort of documents like different types of documents put together in order to create a more fuller picture of a black life. Um, and so I think it's important to sort of stay away from the language of absence. I think it's possible to have an absented presence, um, which is a term from Catherine McKittrick. So the, the person's there and it, they're made to look like they're not there. And so I think that's sort of one Place where we can look to black study scholarship to say like yes these people are in the archive otherwise otherwise like how would someone be able to do scholarship on a person that's not there um so the archive attempts to erase and silence but it's not successful because people are still there although they are there in different ways than other bodies might show up in the archive and other stories might show up in the archive I think because of this sort of articulation of erasure as if it's like it's been completed, like people have been completely erased and are absent, we have this uh, approach of inclusion. So it's like get more like let's actively get more archives of black people and people of color in the archive, which I think is wonderful. I think we do need more black stories, um, black documents. Um, and in the archive in general, um, but I don't think that that is a full solution, especially considering that I think that we need to rethink the way that we do archiving altogether. So if we bring in more documents, but we don't accurately describe them, if we don't uh, sort of take the time to really think about, you know, maybe how this person might have wanted to be wanted to be represented, and really take it take the time to learn about the person's life and the material conditions of their life, and how that might inform how we might describe them in the archives, so that they can be discoverable by people who would look for them using certain terms that maybe the archivist wouldn't describe them as. It, it involves research to really. Um, think about the best way to describe these materials. So I think it's not just about including more. And I can't remember right now who said it, but I think we can also just think about sometimes inclusion um, and making people more visible, especially as Black people, can sometimes be a disservice for your stories to be more visible and then you're criminalized yet again. And so there also has to be some care taken taken in including including more people. And it's not just about representation. There just has to be like a sort of complete reimagining and thinking about what that looks like. It's more than inclusion, more than integration, more than just numbers. We just have to really take more care. And then on the concept of accountability, I think there has also been movements and discussions to think about uh, sort of gathering more documentation on harms that have been done by the government against Black people. And the idea has been that if we gather more documentation of the harm and the violence done, then 
there's the possibility for uh, demanding accountability from government institutions. I think that works sometimes, and I think it it works uh, very well for other groups. But I think what history has shown us is that it doesn't always work for Black communities. And I think we can see that through recent examples of sort of police murders, police murdering Black people, where the entire scene is recorded. There's no more documentation that we can get than like, you can see everything that happened there. You can see that this person didn't reach for anything or that this person wasn't resisting or all the things that the police may say that this person is doing. And still the the person is murdered and the cop continues to live on with their life. And so I think the idea of getting more documentation and demanding accountability from the people who harmed you in the first place, it doesn't, it just doesn't always work that way. Um, and these systems weren't meant for us. And up into a certain point in history, Black people couldn't even take advantage of courts and couldn't sue people because they weren't considered people in order to even have the right to have their day in court. Um, and so I think it can sometimes be a bit of a, I don't want to say a mistake, but I think sometimes we just have to think more carefully about if it's worth pursuing accountability from from systems and people that harmed us intentionally and uh, sort of don't have any intention of undoing that harm or making it less likely that the harm is done in the future. Um, even though that sort of method of accountability may work for other situations and for other communities. Yeah, in your work, you offer this concept of fugitive discernment. Quote, discernment, a quality often used to describe the skill honed by professionals, is used here to both honor Black women's intimate ways of knowing and to situate Blackness and Black ways of knowing as a way to expand current understandings of archive and where Black people exist within them. I being Zakia, offer fugitive discernment as a form of critique that centers Black epistemologies of contending with the anti-Blackness of traditional archives, where the tools and documentation of dispossession, criminalization, oppression, and negation have been appropriated, collected, disrupted, and disordered in order to discern and attend to the obscurity that is Black life existing within and without archival documents. Do you want to like unpack that a bit or unravel it for us? What that means? Yeah. So I sort of developed this concept just through thinking through uh, reading some of the work that I've mentioned of some of these scholars and their sort of discussion of fugitivity, which is sort of like this disregard for like the way that we're told we're supposed to do things, like the way that what's normal, what the state tells us we're supposed to do and just being like, whatever, you know. And I think often that happens through a need to survive and having to like be a fugitive and thinking through blackness and its ties to fugitivity and like, especially through slavery, um, like being a fugitive and like running away from slavery. Um, and many times I think black life is lived in this state of fugitivity, in this state of, I think in one way, because blackness is criminalized in so many ways. Um, 
there is this line by this group, Arrested Development, that says self-sufficiency to us is to them a crime. Um, and this song called Trauma that discusses like Black trauma. And so in many ways, like Blackness and just living life as a Black person is criminalized. And so to continue living, you, you live as a fugitive. I think in thinking through the scholarship of people like Sadia Hartman, um, Christina Sharp, and Tina Camp, they talk about living Black life through fugitivity. But despite sort of they, saying that and like how Black life sometimes like evades documentation um, as people like try to evade being seen. However, their scholarship perfectly like sort of describes uh, this encounter with fugitivity and this encounter with being able to document life that often goes unnoticed, is elusive um, and unseen in documentation, even though it's there. Um, and so I developed the concept of fugitive discernment to talk about the methods that they use sort of bringing their own experiences being Black women to think through uh, reading archives and being like, yes, this is like an FBI file or um, yes, this is a mugshot photo, but still being able to see the humanity and resistance in this person's look, you know, the way they're looking at the camera and sort of seeing that Black life and this fugitivity exists even in documents that were meant to oppress or meant to invisibilize these people or objectify violence or whatever we can think of, but still being able to just really discern the strategies that may have been deployed to like be a person and just like stare back at the camera and be like, yes, you're taking this photo to make this claim about what black people are or are not. Um, but I'm going to like assert my personhood in the way that I'm like, just slightly adjusting my face towards the camera and just really being able to, to see and to hear and discern black people and black life in documents that they weren't meant to sort of, that weren't meant to document them as people. And so, yeah, that's my uh, just term to really just describe that method um, that is really an act of discernment. And I think I also sort of came to that term and I think I read in some archival practice book of like archivists have to like discern, you know, what we want to collect or, you know, what is something we don't want to accession. And I just really thought about like discernment as this skill that I think uh, it's often used like you either have it or you don't have the skill of discernment. Um, and I think it's really uh, special to just like acknowledge these like intimate ways of knowing that these black women have from their own life experiences, from the experiences of uh, black women and uh, their black ancestors. And they just have this way of knowing and seeing and describing that I think just comes from their embodied experiences as Black women. Yeah, I remember reading a lot about like, 
Yeah, like that does come up, like, you know, discerning archival value and then all those different types of value. But it, it, like, hearing that makes me just think, like, wow, that's so vague. Like when we were just talking about informational value, monetary, whatever value. But it's, yeah, and when you talked about embodiment and it, it really, I think, emphasizes how archives are not neutral. I, as a non-Black person, could never do what you're doing, at least to any point of justice. The other thing yeah. it reminds me of is conversations like when we were in the archival core together about people's role in creating records and who gets recognized. You're talking about that in terms of like a mugshot, right? Like as something like created by the state with a certain goal, but in understanding these records in a different way. It reminds me of conversations we had about like who gets credit for this record or whose name is attached to it. And through this fugitive discernment, like you're really cracking that open and, and ripping apart a lot of that very Eurocentric archival theory. I imagine that you bring this to the way that you arrange and describe the stuff that you web archive, right? Not only people who, who come and use those um, records right. as researchers yeah. or whatever, right? Maybe that's a better way of, of explaining what I'm trying to get at here. I think it comes at all angles. It comes at uh, sort of the discernment comes in sort of an interpretation of the materials or um, sort of seeing fully what's there. For example, if I'm looking at like two inventory sheets and I see one where the age of, you know, a black woman like myself, that's um, like a 20 something year old black woman. And on one sheet, maybe the age says one thing and then on the other sheet the age says something else um maybe i could think about why it might be beneficial for her to lie about her age for you know sort of a number of reasons of what type of maybe what type of treatment you you receive um in sort of in chattel slavery based on your age. And so I might be able to just sort of discern that not from any particular experience of mine, but just knowing the ways that Black people often aren't seen as children. Um, and so maybe lying to say that you're younger will get you like a little bit better treatment than if you're seen as older and more threatening as a Black person. And so I think there's the discernment and being able to discern that from looking at these two documents rather than like seeing her as a liar. I see her as a fugitive who's trying to like survive and have better treatment to avoid punishment of some sort. But then also in my description of it in a finding aid or in an article, I might describe it in a way that doesn't say that she's a liar but that says that she is a brave woman who, you know, decided to do something that would make her life better, despite sort of being under the under the duress of slavery. So I think it comes in in like seeing the document and understanding it and then also in the description of it. Yeah, thanks. Thank thanks for the example. Yeah. Now that you're out of school for now, um, <laughs> uh, how... Is this concept of fugitive discernment that you've been working on um, and how is critical archival studies playing into your work as a Black archivist um, and at the Schomburg 
you know, you've talked about a little bit, you, you've talked about this um, earlier as well, but and also in your reflections from Ari, you talked about rethinking the entire discipline of archival science and imagining better archives and being more intentional about methodologies and listening and citing to Black women. Can you say a little bit more about this? Yeah, I think in my day-to-day in sort of bringing in the concept of fugitive discernment, really uh, just thinking about like the concept of discernment and it just coming from within and really being intentional, um, listening to yourself and your intuition and guiding these decisions. I think I try to always just think about everyday people in my work and people who look like me, who don't look like me, who have lives like me, who don't. Um, And just think of ways that I can better represent them and have them participate in the documentation of their own life. One way I do that is through web archiving, because I think when people create websites, they are created sort of to like represent to the world their perspective or you know, what they're thinking of at that moment or what they created. And so I think there's there's that way. Um, and then also just sort of communicating with people about web archiving um, and saying, hey, we're going to preserve your website and letting people have a say-so. And if they're like, no, then it's like the answer is no. Flat out, um, there is no like argument there. And like we can, of course, advocate and say like it's very important to have this preserved, but like, if someone doesn't want to preserve, then so be it. And so just really thinking about people and thinking about how I would want to be treated in in the record and as a person in, in conversation. And I think in terms of listening to Black women, you know, I'm a Black woman, so I try to listen to myself, which I think can be hard um, when the world tells me at every turn that what I have to say is not important um, in a number of ways. And so I think being really intentional and listening to myself and lessons I've learned thus far and just moving with intention in that way. And I I think on the other side of that, sort of every time something happens in the world, it's always like Black women told y'all this was going to happen and nobody listened. And so I just think about that and just keep that in mind of like, yeah, I, I know what I'm doing here um, and I can always consult someone else when I feel like I'm not. Um, but just like really believing in myself and like bringing my full self to the work that I'm doing um, so that I can, I know, I so that I know what that feels like to like bring my full self to the table and then be able to then see what it looks like when someone else is not being fully represented and like giving them the opportunity and making the space so that someone can bring their full self um, to the record and to the world of archiving. And to just like, and when I think about like re- reimagining what archives do feel like, smell like, um, I just really think about like, what, what does an archive of Black life fully full black life that represents the material conditions of like the way people live and what they experience each day. I just try to imagine what that looks like and feel like and um, move towards that with intention. And I I have every, I mean, I think that changes 
depending on the content and there is no like one way that that looks or feels but I just try to like imagine that and go with that sense of imagination and just create the conditions and do the work that feels like it's moving towards that. Before we wrap up, is there anything that you want to leave folks with as a thought? Something you wish more folks knew about digital archiving and Black culture? Anything we haven't touched on that you really wanted to say? I think I wish that people knew, sort of like Nike said, to just do it, you know? Like, to know that it exists, to know that it's a thing, that it's an option that we have, um, and it's something that we are all capable of doing. I don't you don't have to be an archivist to web archive or to archive uh, in the analog sense. We all do it. We all can do it. Everybody can and is a memory worker. And so I think with web archiving, digital archiving more broadly, including materials that aren't created online, but like are created on a computer um, or a phone, I think it is a bit to learn. But I think it is worth it. And I think some of it we already know just, you know, by living in this world. And like I said, we're all memory workers. So there's things that we know and there's things that archivists and digital archivists can guide people into doing this work themselves. But we know, I think specifically in thinking about Black culture, we know how to survive. Um, and so I think it's important for us to also survive online. And so there's really nothing to it but to do it. And I wish people would just do it. Yeah, so thank you so much. If folks want to reach you online, where can they find you? Twitter and on Instagram. I am at ZZ Collier. So Z as in zebra, two of them. C-O-L-L-I-E-R. And also you can find out about things that I'm doing and also access my Twitter or Instagram on Linktree, which I am newly a fan of. So that's l-i-n-k-t-r dot e-e backslash zz collier um so linktree slash zz collier and that's where i am i'll say ours too we can be found on twitter at organizing pod also with a z not an s for american listeners <laughs> our email is organizing ideas pod at gmail.com and our website is organizing ideas pod dot wordpress dot com <laughs>